you can you can leave in me saying I'm happy with, with the young folks because nothing says hap like someone saying I'm trying to stay happy with the young folks. It combines effort with with antiquarianism, the two things that young folks love. <laughs> Welcome to the Black Box Poetry Podcast. This is an endeavor that we started about 10 years ago, thanks to the generosity of Haverford College. I'm Sean Hughes. I was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I study Victorian literature at Rutgers University. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and translator from New Hampshire, uh, best known for my translation of a uh, great living Ukrainian writer, Serhii Zhidan's novel, Virtue of Gred, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um, and I'm Anastasia. I currently live in Washington, D.C., where I'm working on my dissertation in post-confessional poetry. All right, which poem are we doing first? Uh, so I thought a good poem to start with would be uh, Frank Bedart's poem about 9-11. Uh, which is a pretty pretty extreme, inciting incident for uh, occasional poetry, but uh, provi- provides a very illustrative example of, uh, of how it can work, I think. May breath for a dead moment cease, as jerking your head upward, you hear as if in slow motion, floor collapse evenly upon floor as 110 floors descend upon you. May what you have made descend upon you. May the listening ears of your victims, their eyes, their breath, enter you and eat like acid, the bubble of rectitude that allowed you breath. May their breath now, in eternity, be your breath. Now, as you wished, you cannot for us not be. May this be your single prophet. Of your rectitude at last disenthralled, you seek the dead each time you enter them. They spit you out. The dead find you are not food. Out of the great secret of morals, the imagination to enter, the skin of another, what I have made is a curse. So the set of concepts that I'd like to pitch as a viable way of talking about this poem is the idea that in an occasional poem you have an empirical event And you have the event of the poem. And what Bedart is doing here, I believe, is trying to map those two onto each other as closely as possible. Opening of the poem begins by describing the empirical event that is the inciting uh, incident for the poem. We have the 110 floors collapsing as the initial thrust or gesture of the poem so when you say the event of the poem just back up a second when you say the event of the poem i just want to make sure i'm on the same page that you're you mean um the occasion of actually writing a poem like the fact that somebody sat down and like started putting words on a page you're talking about the event of Uh, the poem are you just talking about inspiration for the poem now i'm really not sure do you mean like that moment when the muse like steps into your brain and you're like oh i have a thing to write about or are you talking about the event of the poem being the overflow of powerful emotions recollected in tranquility, like once you get to the tranquility part. I'm really glad you brought that up because it's uh, uh, neither of those was what I meant to meant to get at. 
poem is sort of the uh, linguistic and metaphorical change that happens in the reader's consciousness when the reader experiences the poem. Oh, so the, the uh, reception. So the uh, people commonly talk about the progression of images or metaphors in a poem as a poetic argument. Mm -hmm. So the main event of the poem would be the moment when the reader is convinced of the debatable thesis that the poetic argument set out to prove. Okay. Oh, all right. Here's my different way of thinking about it. There's a, a term for ceremonial rhetoric, which I think is epideixis. And uh, what I like about that is the root word is, is deixis. And like the deictic means to point at something. So deictic yeah, yeah, words, yeah, yeah. words like mm -hmm. I or here or now, where the word, uh, the content of the word is totally dependent on the situation that it's used in. And one of the things that almost always happens with occasional poetry is that it leans really heavily on that quality of like pointing and saying this, look at this. And at one level that I think is sort of naturally what makes it occasional, that it's, it's about something. And so it has to sort of gesture at the thing that it's about. I feel like what makes a lot of occasional poetry interesting, if it is interesting, is like the lag time there. So there's an event that's being pointed at, and it could be something that's sort of encapsulated in our memory, like 9-11, which is referred to as a specific day, but then the day also refers to a specific moment in the day. And then you can write a poem about it that's pointing at that and saying this, this, this. And the weird thing is that all the moments in this poem that are pointing at that event and, um, and saying, look at this, aren't capable of lining up with the moment as it actually happened. And right. that seems to be the tension between the 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 kind of like event of the poem and the event that the poem is about and the poem yeah. itself is very interested in that tension because when the uh the speaker in this poem is pronouncing this curse against the uh the terrorists he says may what you have made descend upon you made in the sense of the the greek root of of poem and poet is is to make white poets as, and uh what what bedart is doing is sort of associating the uh the empirical event that's the inciting incident for the poem and the event of the poem in the reader's consciousness i mean also if the reader is reading it out loud there's something about like breath is on its own line which is a really bold move when you go through this, there are a lot of lines that are a pretty similar length, and then abruptly you have to vocalize breath uh, in and of itself. So there's something about like reenacting when you do an occasional poem too. Like you have to live through something again. I found it really striking um, how distracting the line breaks are. They really draw attention to yeah. themselves, right? They're those are jams, right? Like where we really yeah. step down. So I noticed both of you when you were reading that break at the end of the first line may breath for a dead moment cease jerking as your head upward as you yet yeah, like that was as jerking your head upward like that that jump that leap down you guys both really drew out how uncomfortable ending a line with your is 
Um, especially that like jerking your, that felt really uncomfortable. And the syntax was really unclear for a second. Even, I mean, I even heard you guys read it twice and I still could not land that syntax reading it myself. So I think that was interesting, but I also wanted to go back one second um, because Sean, you said something interesting about the way that equation poems like occupy this weird space in time because they're obviously written in response to an inciting event. It's weird if they happen too long after the event has passed. It's also weird to read an occasion poem like years after an event has passed if the event doesn't like have any cultural weight anymore. Like this is a 9-11 poem that's also like within our cultural memory. I'm curious how successful this poem will be in 100 years when 9-11 might not be quite as salient. One and two, occasional poems have this weird thing and this is an interesting this poem does an interesting job contending with this problem of being like occasional poems feel like this kind of frozen moment in time so there has to be some sort of way to look forward um and introducing the curse into it curses persist um they aren't locked in the in this like moment in time in the same way so i think that was a really interesting choice in the way this poem is structured that it starts especially because there is this like volta in the center around the word breath where we start like moving away from this moment in time and it becomes kind of a, this is now the new normal or this is something that persists past the inciting incident. Uh, right on. I think you're really getting to something that's central to occasional poems as occasional poems there. I think a, a corollary to what you're arguing for here is a distinction that might be drawn between an occasional poem recruiting significance and interest from the event that incited it versus a poem that wrestles with that event and thereby yields significance as a result of the process of wrestling with it. The distinction would be, I view this as a very successful occasional poem because it is an attempt to grapple with a traumatic event that the speaker and potentially the reader has difficulty cognizing and that grappling and groping yields aesthetic value. Mm -hmm. This would be an an, an example of a hypothetical unsuccessful occasional poem dealing with 9-11 would be one that doesn't generate that interest or significance or aesthetic value on the linguistic level, but rather its gesture towards the inciting event is where it hopes to draw that, uh, that value from. Yeah. I mean, like we've talked before about how often with poetry, talking about something serious doesn't make you serious or talking about something important doesn't make you important. When you look at occasional poems from earlier periods, like from a hundred years ago, maybe with a few exceptions, the event is never going to have the, the kind of immediate force that it had for the people who were experiencing it. And so often the, the, the way that the poem kind of like manages to fold uh, a certain amount of, of um, difficulty or lag time into itself is, is what winds up becoming interesting about it. Um, along these lines, like, so here's a, here's a quick thought. So last weekend I went to church because the world is ending and I, uh, there was a, there was a sermon called resist resistance now. And during it, one of the things that I was reflecting on is how there's a lot of uh, like manners of speaking about what's going on currently with the refugee ban and with the um, 
behavior of the Trump administration uh, that are weirdly perched in this space where it's it's not clear whether they're metaphorical or not, or the extent to which they're metaphorical. So it was a it was a sermon. It was you know talking about um, Christ's resistance to the Romans, and it was kind of like weirdly stuck between the sense that. Um, we are living in peace times and we're borrowing the language of war to talk about the severity of the moment that we find ourselves in, or we are at the beginning of, of wartime and we are just talking literally about the sense of uh, resistance or opposition or, or, you know, like struggling against, you know, oppression. And what was so weird about it is like, I, I don't want to talk about uh, Trump on this podcast particularly because we all need a break, but there's there's a, there's like a way in which um, the like the difficulties of poetry crop up everywhere, right? You know. Well, it's so um, I was just going to say that's so interesting that they started talking about basically, right? Basically, this is like a question of like appropriateness of like lexicon, right? Do you use more or like or the shock value and the utility of using a lexicon that doesn't belong? So like, of course, we're yeah. in peacetime right now. So it is shocking and it is does give you some power to use war rhetoric. I'm, I'm like trying to think right now, is that true? Like I actually, I was partially late for this podcast because I was protesting outside of the Supreme Court. And so I'm trying to think right now, what rhetoric, was there like war rhetoric? I guess the resist rhetoric or stand up, fight back, right? That's the easy one. That's like the easy war rhetoric, right? But that's interesting coming from a party from, from the like the side that ostensibly is not in favor of wartime rhetoric, but in any event, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's That's really interesting cool. that, uh, in, in the same vein of, uh, recruiting significance from, uh, recruiting sort of low hanging significance versus generating significance by engaging with something, uh, hearing that exchange makes me think of, uh, I, I understand the sense in which you guys are using the word peacetime that it, within the, uh, the actual United States, the conflict between Trumpists and Trump opponents has not escalated to all-out violence. But our, our country is not in a state of peacetime. No. But when I was considering how to bring that up, there was some uh, some voice in my brain that was saying, the way to bring that up is to use, use lots of nouns that grope at a sort of directly invoking the horror being experienced by the people who know intimately that our country in the international sense is not in a state of peacetime. And that gesture would have been a sort of uh, grasping after significance that our moment grants me rather than act productively engaging with anything. Yeah. Wait, There's actually, that actually is a really good segue because that brings me to the one line in the second half of this poem that, like, I am not sure what to do with because basically what's recruited in the second half actually push on me on this. Because um, you, you talked about using, you wanted to use nouns and you wanted to use um, kind of this, like, low-hanging fruit, right? These, like, words that are charged enough on their own that they kind of automatically activate a response. Yes. And I think words like, um, I think this poem does that really well. We know that, like, words like breath right um are words that like have a lot of activation to them they're they're very yeah. bodily words but they also have a sort of larger emotional or spiritual significance and this poem does that really well right and the dead you find are not food using dead and food so proximally to one another also kind of activates that sort of um power 
But I think the word, the, the phrase that I just like find so distracting in a good way um, is that may this be your single profit, right? Because yes. obviously yeah. that's a pun on the way it's spelled in the poem is P-R-O-F-I-T. So yeah. like monetary profit or like, you know, I've, I've made something off of this. But I mean, I don't know about you, listeners out there. Uh, I yeah. totally I, listened, I heard I it watching too. this, reading it with my eyes and heard P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Um, yeah. So like that's a, and that's, that doesn't activate the same, it's a charged word, but it's a charged word from a different vernacular than like breath or food or dead. So I was curious how you guys kind of saw that activating in this kind of web. That's such an interesting connection because at one level, like breath to profit works really well if it's direct because there's a whole way of thinking about profits being like the word inspired means like to have, like to to have breath. Um, it's it's related to like respiration but at another level once you've intervened with all these other bodily functions it kind of muddies the waters so like there's a classic idea of the prophet as someone who you know the lord has put a burning coal in their mouth so they must they must open it you know that they're compelled to to sort of like speak out but no one thinks about their prophets needing to have like a, a heavy breakfast or go to the bathroom or like any of the other bodily functions that we associate with being alive. And so like, there's definitely Although a gap Theologians there. have made it clear that all those prophets did have to do those things. Oh, totally. Yeah. Cause like, there's a really important line to draw there. And like, uh, Milton goes out of his way to tell you that angels can poop if they have to. The, the angel shows up in the garden of Eden and like, they offer him food and he says, don't worry, I can poop, which is a way of saying like, keep it coming. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm expecting a full meal. Um, so, like, I think that uh, one of the things that, that that's happening there is that's being roped in. There's also a way in which, like, it's a really cerebral moment because single profit, part of what it's suggesting is that whatever belief system might be uh, recruited to justify, you know, turning a, a, a jet into a missile, this kind of, like, gratuity is actually what it's all about. Like, there's no religion with a single profit, you know? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all have multiple prophets. I can't think of a single one that only has one prophet. And so there's something kind of, you know, like uh, weirdly small and narrow about having one prophet. And then when the single prophet is that you're never going to be forgotten, uh, it seems even more, you know, vain and and terrible. Um, But like, you're totally right. It's a really, you can't run that algorithm in your head while you're reading it. You have to kind of stop or look back on it. So uh, there's a there's a, a word that was used earlier in the conversation, uh, uh, reenacting, that I think is central to the event of this poem or the gesture or argument of this poem, and the uh, the stumbling and the groping and the distraction of this poem could be read as a a reenactment of trauma. I mean, psychologically, trauma is an experience that one can't quite experience an experience that you can't uh, uh, process as we would say colloquially. You can't have done with it. Right. But uh, another point I want to raise is uh, you you brought up the breath root of inspiration. That's the same root as uh, the, the spirit that is, uh, is being invoked to, uh, uh, to enter the characters in this poem. And I think that is, very closely involved in the uh, the bubble of rectitude 
Yeah. The bubble of rectitude that allowed you breath. So breath, the breath that gives us the, the spear sound in inspiration, the word spiritus meant both breath and soul in Latin. And to a certain extent, to the people who used that language, these concepts were still alloyed in a way that they aren't to us using the word spirit in English. So the spirit that is uh, is doing this action of entering and the breath are uh, are sort of mapped onto one another. So in, in the context of the uh, the bubble of rectitude, because the bubble of rectitude is a... Can we just pause complete... a second? Bubble sure. of rectitude? That is a crazy fucking phrase. Oh, yeah. Bubble yes. of rectitude. Okay. We're going to have to yes. come back to that. We're, gonna, okay. it's, it's, we're going to... Yeah. You. Keep going. That's going to be the whole thing. <laughs> so let's, uh, let, let's, let's start approaching it now. The bubble of rectitude is a completely solitary, self-contained, narcissistic, moral universe... How better to shatter such a universe than another breath or spirit entering it and rendering solitude impossible? Mm. Yeah. So one of the reasons that this is such a, uh, a difficult line and such an intriguing line, I think, goes back to our initial question about the inciting incident in reality that leads to an occasional poem, the empirical event versus the cognitive event of the poem, because this bubble is introduced through uh, the image of, uh, of acid. May the listening ears of your victims, their eyes, their breath, enter you and eat like acid, the bubble of rectitude that allowed you breath. So the acid imagery is not coming from the realm or the lexicon of the empirical 9-11. We have we had the collapsing floors earlier in the poem, which did come from that realm, but acid does not come from that realm. Right. Yeah. 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 Which also, yeah. Right. Good point. And that also that kind of gives acid can't point. melt steel beams. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, also like so in surplus because you don't need acid to like burst a bubble. Well, an acid is not something that typically does burst a bubble. It's deliberately. Yeah metaphors are often meant to draw an image or a relationship between two concepts from sort of everyday human scale experience. Yeah. But this is, is almost uh, flagrantly and performatively doing the opposite of this. Yeah. Because a, a bubble popping is an image that's readily available to any reader. Yeah. And if this were a bubble popping with a pin, it would be drawing a, drawing an image from that everyday human scale experience. But Bedard is very deliberately not doing that because acid does not generally pop bubbles. Well, it's also yeah. really interesting because uh, we think of bubbles popping, but this bubble is not popping. Like that's part of what I find so fucking strange about this line is bubble seems like such a, like, like it's, I mean, it sounds silly. Like all of the buh, 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 buh sounds yeah. silly. It also just feels like a silly word. It feels like it belongs to like, I mean, I guess like bubbling cauldrons or something like that, but like, I don't know. It feels so weird. And for that to be like, so in any event, what I was going to say was, um, it's interesting that it activates a new brain space because right, the way that a, bu a bubble disappears is by popping um, or dissolving. So for an acid, to, a bubble to be eaten like that is really yeah. cool um, and makes 
I don't know. That's cool. I like what that does to my brain. That might, that makes my brain think about things differently. I also think the fact that uh, it does have that uh, that infantile sound is good to bring up. I don't want to uh, talk too much about narcissism, but as we've been discussing, a narcissist is the president of the United States. Yeah. So one one can hardly talk about it too much these days. The uh, there's something innately infantile about any sort of narcissistic consciousness or construct because an infant is someone who doesn't understand the boundaries of their self and the boundaries of empirical reality where these inciting incidents happen. So the, the buh, 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 the infantile babble sound of bubble occurring yeah. on a line dealing with a self-contained narcissistic reality. There's something felicitous about that. But what's really nice um, and what we haven't really talked about yet is that this is called the empathy curse. I don't know about you guys, but in the couple of weeks after the election, a couple of days, because it has barely been a week since the inauguration, um, I've heard a lot of people speak about um, the, the call for empathy right now is now the time to perform empathy. And empathy right now is having like this hot moment, right? Or it has the last couple of years. Um, yeah. Empathy is this thing that we should all be striving for. And this, the curse here is to, to have to occupy these people who um, have these people occupy you or you be able to occupy their skin and have to deal with um, them, their judgments of your heinous actions. But one of the interesting things about empathy is I think, and I think this poem is doing a good job pointing it out. And I think you were starting to get there, Isaac, is that empathy also has this really narcissistic quality to it, right? If it's um, performed in certain ways, because you are forcing yourself into somebody else's skin, right? So on the best level is you get you are like trying to live somebody else's experience. But in another way, it's like very invasive. um, And actually, like, pretty awful to force your yourself, your being your identity into somebody else's identity. Yeah. Um, so it's it's actually I don't know this poem does a really nice job of starting to activate kind of the really um, the kind of stickiness and difficulties of empathy and kind of some of the like moral failings of empathy. There was a um, there's an essayist named William Hazlitt who described going to see the painting collection of this rich guy who had these amazing you know uh, uh, landscapes and portraits. And Hazlitt himself used to be a painter and he was so excited to look at these paintings. And then uh, after like, uh, you know, 20 minutes or so, he suddenly thought, I would rather uh, like, um, I would rather be myself and have my taste than have your portraits. Like I'd rather have my taste than your, than your paintings. Um, yeah. And like, that's, that's always kind of the latent potential in empathy. It, 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 can, be, it can very easily become this really condescending, uh, you know, or like belittling or, or sort of smug project. The other thing that's so weird about this is like the people who committed 9-11 can't have empathy because they're dead. And so partially it's that kind of classic idea that I need to, I need to, I need to, I need an afterlife in order to punish you as much as I want to. Mm -hmm. But it's also the sense that really the curse is not on them, even though the poem is pretending it is, the curse is on us. We have to think about this because we're alive. People who died don't have to have empathy for anybody because they're dead. <laughs> and this is like the really morbid thing about thinking through horrible historical events is that, you know, it, Isaac was talking about trauma earlier. Trauma is, 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 uh, is, is like empathy for your past self. You're stuck with it forever. So I think what that sends us to is uh, to keep 
allowing these last two lines to preoccupy us because these last two lines are where the poem is problematizing empathy, even though it's empathy that it means to curse these perpetrators with. Mm -hmm. Uh, The imagination to enter the skin of another, uh, I think really foregrounds the point you were making a moment ago about there being something potentially narcissistic about the act of empathizing because the imagination to enter the skin of another recalls the sort of constructed or imaginary nature of the, the bubble moral universe in which the perpetrators have to put themselves to do such a thing. Right. And imagination also um, creates a sense of uh, individual agency, right? And imagination doesn't exist out in the world. Imagination is a construct within one mind. So if empathy is an imaginative act, it's only one person's brain who's performing it. In a, in a really interesting way, it doesn't take into account the brain or the, the skin, in this case, of the other. It's only taking yeah. into account the person who is verbing, right? Right on. That sends us back as well to the uh, eccentric use of the verb uh, make here, make in the poetic sense, because the act of making involved in aesthetic imagination is being tied to the uh, the empirical inciting crime of the poem. May what you have made descend upon you. The empirical event is being figured as an act of poetic or aesthetic imagination in some way, isn't it? Mm, yeah, actually, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's a lot more delicious now that I'm like, like seeing what you're, what, what's giving you so much pleasure there. Yeah. May what you have made. And it's talking about like an event the same way that like, in those like really syrupy Hallmark movies, right? Like this old couple, like kind of look lovingly at each other and like look out at the room of like their children and grandchildren all sitting there. Yeah. Like, look at what we made here. Right. And yeah. what I'm talking about is like over time, all of these people came to occupy this room. Like in one way it's like, yeah, we made a bunch of kids, but like, really in the hallmark movie they're talking about this time that has passed this is kind of an interesting version of that in that like this is time time has made this this event has been made and wrought um yeah that's cool so it sounds like the uh the initial thesis that uh i i meant to bring to this poem before talking about it with you guys was that the empirical event and the event of the poem map onto one another imperfectly But in fact, the bubble moral universe to which the terrorists have retreated is a narcissistic and imaginative act, as is Bedart's act of creating a curse around the act of empathy. Mm -hmm. Out of the great secret of morals, what I have made is a curse. Mm -hmm. So that reenactment... Uh, that reenactment of a retreat into narcissism in order to commit a crime when the terrorists do it and in order to create this curse when the speaker does it, do mirror one another and do successfully map onto one another. Yeah, like the vulgar way of saying it would be that it's like the trope in action movies when the the hero is going to like go underground he's got to become a little bit like the 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 enemy in order to defeat them and here there's something about creating a curse that requires like a little bit of narcissism because you're doing something it's it's performative it's making it's also totally in your head 
Bedard doesn't really believe that by saying this, he's affecting, you know, the dead people who were involved in this attack. He really thinks that he's kind of creating a, um, like a foothold for morality by going through the same kind of, you know, self-involved thought process that allows someone to do something terrible um, by kind of overestimating the importance of their own judgment upon the outside world. I was thinking, um, in a lot of ways, the perfect counterpart to thinking about occasional poems is anecdotal poems, because mm-hmm. occasional poems, it's not, it's not a form, it's not a genre, it's not even really a mode, it's kind of the idea that the poem is about a specific event, sometimes in a really ceremonial way, but not necessarily. And the weird thing about that definition is anecdotal poems are the same, but they're also totally different. Like in some sense, the really big difference is that there's either a total lack of ceremony or at least the kind of event that's being described doesn't have that quality for us. Um, so, but then there, there, there are totally poems that blur that line. So if you think about The Day Lady Died by um, Frank O'Hara, that's an occasional poem at one level. It's an elegy, but another level, it's like, yeah, I was going out getting a malted and I bought a book of poems and like, I don't know who's going to like feed me dinner. Um, and it's really drawing on a certain, you know, really recent strand of like recent by my standards means, you know, last 200 years, uh, like kind of, you know, yeah, I was out doing stuff and then wouldn't, you know, a thing happened. Uh, but the thing happened is, is like still really poignant and like has a kind of like big, big historical significance. Yeah. Um, It's funny you bring that up. That was actually something I was going to mention is that there's this funny, we have a tendency we were trained in it, like we were trained to think this way and i don't know my graduate study has not disabused me of this that the way to think about poems is to think about their like the language and the strategies it employs um almost to the almost to the point of like fuck the content man or like n- no need for the content but the funny thing about elegies epithalamia i can't say that word the wedding poems <laughs> epithalamia that word (laughs) those poems and occasional poems is that they're so content-based um like you can't define them without the content so it just it makes for a really interesting way of thinking about poems it's like very clear that you can't only think about the way that a poem um, is constructed because there there's like very there's a long history of thinking about poems in the ways that they're about things you know odes is another example and in a weird way all of those odes wedding poems, which I can't say that word, and elegies are all kind of types of occasional poems too, right? Because they're about these exciting actions. And in a a certain sense, the weird thing is they're right on that boundary between form and content because they have that didactic quality, because they have that like pointing, look, look, here's a thing quality. There's a distinction that's sometimes drawn between an index and an icon. So like an icon resembles the thing that it that it it like is a sign for so like a crucifix is iconic in that it you know looks like what it's 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 referring you to it looks like what it's telling you about but like a weather vane is an index because it doesn't look like the thing that it's telling you about at all it just somehow by a purely merely causal relationship tells you about that the wind is blowing this way not because the change in the direction of the wind changes all but because it changes the orientation of the weather vane Mm -hmm. and occasional poems often have that quality 
there are a lot of qualities that are going to be fairly conventional, even for like a recent one that's, you know, not consciously engaging a convention, even like the most anecdotal poem is still probably going to have conventional elements because, you know, dying is the only thing that we all have to do. Um, but like the, the thing that becomes kind of weird there is it's like really, you know, even though the content is like the defining feature of it, it's also a lot of times, um, you know, surprisingly easy, easily suppressed. So I'm nominating mine next. This one is Not an Elegy for Mike Brown by Denez Smith. It was written in 2014. So it's, I mean, that's pretty recent for, for Poetry Land. I am sick of writing this poem, but bring the boy. His new name, his same old body, ordinary, black, dead thing. Bring him and we will mourn until we forget what we are mourning. And isn't that what being black is about? Not the joy of it, but the feeling you get when you are looking at your child, turn your head, then poof, no more child. That feeling, that's black. Think, once a white girl was kidnapped and that's the Trojan War. Later, up the block, Troy got shot and that was Tuesday. Are we not worthy of a city of ash, of 1,000 ships launched because we are missed? Always something deserves to be burned. It's never the right thing nowadays. I demand a war to bring the dead boy back, no matter what his name is this time. I at least demand a song. A song will do just fine. Look at what the Lord has made. Above Missouri, sweet smoke. So I'm noticing that this poem has a thing going on that we were kind of talking about in the last poem, where the inciting event is kind of co corresponding or coincident with, or somehow tied to the act of making the poem. Yeah. So that last line, or that last line in the second section, I at least demand a song, a song will do just fine. So the poems we're reading right now are short poems, which we call lyric poems, because they kind of belong to this song tradition. So it feels like that reference, like I at least demand a song, it feels like it's kind of metatextual and respond and like talking about this poem itself, right? I at least demand this poem, a poem will do just fine. I feel like song and poem are kind of interchangeable in that moment. I, I agree. And I think that there's a way in which the gesture of making a song or a poem in response to the inciting incident in empirical reality is allied to the gesture of generalizing that single specific event. The event, as we were discussing previously with trauma, the event has a certain singularity that the reader, especially the reader of this poem as a witness to a recent historical event, that singularity is something the reader reliably has access to, but the first gesture of the poem is to generalize that singular experience, to say that this single traumatic event in empirical reality that provokes the event of the poem is not singular for many. For many, it's part of everyday reality. Yeah, it's interesting that you said response. One of the things I was thinking about while we were prepping for this uh, was that occasion poems um, in some ways are really like about response, like almost like a, a call and response. Um, yeah. It's like a kind of implicit call. 
and really what we're dealing with is the response to that call or right or response to the inciting event or whatever um when we have two contrasted potential responses we have the uh, the face that launched a thousand ships mm-hmm. the white girl whose singular traumatic event is the trojan war and then we have this singular event which is not permitted to remain singular by the poem but is generalized so we have two contrasting potential responses to uh empirical events that are mapped onto one another and contrasted with one another and in a sense, like, that would be a way of distinguishing an occasional poem from an anecdote poem that, you know, an anecdote poem, no one ever expects that this needs a response. So if you, I don't know, like, go to a place that you went to five years earlier, and you have a strange experience there, uh, no one is going to think like, boy, I, I sure hope that you write Tintern Abbey. But when something like this happens, one of the things that's so... Uh, confusing and frustrating about it is at one level it seems like there's an obligation to respond to it that not responding would be like capitulating to it it would be accepting it as normal or or, um, or not outrageous and then another level to respond is to is to like in some ways be stuck in the trap of redundancy that you have to keep saying the same thing over and over again and by saying the same thing over and over again that becomes a kind of normalization your lot in the world becomes you know being a, a professional mourner Right. I think I'm fascinated by the way the poem like does a, a kind of like sleight of hand at the end. So you have that line, I at least demand a song, a song will do just fine. And that seems to be the poem referring, I mean, Asia was talking about this earlier. It's, it's like the poem referring to its own contribution, the the kind of hope that by talking about something we can mitigate it or or, you know, alleviate it. And then you have these two extra lines Look at what the Lord has made above Missouri, sweet smoke. And I feel like at at one level, that's like referring to the rioting in Ferguson or in like the surrounding area. And earlier in the poem, he says, always something deserves to be burned. It's never the right thing nowadays. I demand a war to bring the dead boy back, no matter what his name is this time. And the poem is, I, I feel like at one level, trying to put the reader into the mindset that understands why even the most seemingly gratuitous arson or property destruction or whatever is at a, like a deep level, an understandable reaction to the situation that it's not even that, you know, you assume this is going to set things right, or it's just, or anything like that. It's just a way of trying to have the magnitude of the response suggest the seriousness of the thing that happened but at the same time i really like what you were starting there right that it, it's acknowledging that right that we just want something that acknowledges the magnitude yeah. of what happened but that next line something always deserves to be burned crucially it's never the right thing nowadays so we do yeah. act but in this case i feel like he's also saying like of course this is something that we're going to do but he's all but also kind of acknowledging that um this might not be the the quote right course of action this might not be the quote right thing my favorite thing about really digging into a poem is the way that it makes my brain go to two places at once or multiple <laughs> places at once but this is a really excellent example of a poem trying to make your brain do like accept both of those things as being profoundly true or profoundly accurate or profoundly um real 
that yeah. like, this rioting response is, is of course, this is the what we're going to do, but it's also not the right thing. And you're supposed to be in both spaces at once, right? Um, yeah. And this poem does a really beautiful job of, you, you, that you like landed right on it, Sean, the way that the last couplet kicks you back to that couplet in the middle section, that kind of dialogue between those two sets of lines um, is really, really spectacular in the way it, it like forces your brain to occupy both of those and be okay with being, yeah. I mean, I guess in that negative capability, right? Um, yeah. Hashtag Keats. <laughs> hashtag Keats. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so one of my questions was, so, Sean, you really eloquently said, obviously, this is pulling us into thinking about the riots in Ferguson. Look at what the Lord has made above Missouri's sweet smoke. So one of my questions, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is like, one of the weird things about occasion poems is they lose some of their gravity when the inciting event isn't in the cultural memory anymore. Yeah. Um, So in some ways that's a pretty oblique reference to the to the rioting right um yeah there's no the word riot does not appear (laughs) for one thing um i I mean ferguson does not appear yeah in some ways um missouri doesn't i don't know uh at least as somebody who's not from missouri ferguson and missouri don't immediately click for me as being related um yeah which is terrible and profound, like just not true. Obviously they're related, but like um, I can imagine and being somebody who was like cognizant and alive while this was happening, I can imagine in 20 years, somebody who's already oh, yeah. reading this might struggle, maybe not really struggle, might struggle um, to get that richness that we just kind of parsed for a second there. So what is the longevity of a poem like this? Even though it does reference, like, I mean, it references like one of the tales as old as time, right? The Trojan War. Not that we are not forgetting Helen and Troy in Paris. Paris is the person who kidnaps Helen, the white girl, by the way. Whose name is a city like uh, like Troy in this poem, yeah. who was killed on Tuesday. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's actually interesting because Ferguson is also the name, like a name in a city. Anyway. Well, I have, a, I have a question that's related to yours, so we can stack them for a moment here yeah. as we try to approach this question when it comes to longevity the gesture of generalizing of changing this single traumatic event into an everyday reality mm-hmm. i find that very effective approaching this poem as the sort of reader that i am but the sort of reader that i am is someone who recalls this as a recent historical event mm-hmm. yeah and the generalizing gesture to some extent, might rely on the fact that I have experienced the singularity of the inciting incident, albeit remotely, albeit as a as a witness and not as a participant, not as someone who experiences the trauma that gives it its singularity, but still as a witness to a recent historical event, that singularity is available to me in a way that the poem might be drawing on for its generalizing gesture. So to what extent will that be true for a future reader? I mean, I don't know if there's a good answer to the long, to the longevity question and not in terms of like likely to be correct. I mean, like, I don't know if there's a, like a podcast good answer to the longevity question. Oh, no, um, that's not a good answer. No, that's one of those questions that we don't, I mean, right. We, that's the we, question. We, like, how do we know what's going to be good in a couple of years? We don't. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that's weird about this poem 
right now is that um, there was a whole discourse that I think was predicated on the possibility of some kind of meaningful response happening in the foreseeable future. And that made it seem really beneficial to make a series of individual names a matter of national significance. Morally, we should keep doing that, but it doesn't feel as likely to result in a response as it probably did two years ago. Yeah, that's interesting because you're kind of verging. I mean, what I think you're verging on, correct me if I'm wrong, is really the importance of names, right? Yeah. And that was a discourse that was really important a couple of years ago, say their names. And that was really, I mean, Bernie said it. And I mean, when I was at the Women's March in D.C., they there was a whole series of chants about say their names. Um, yeah. And this is interesting in that it does say the name. It says Mike Brown. But it's interesting that Helen does not get named, right? But we're capitalizing yeah. on the fact that we all know that name. So this does do a weird... You're, that's a really good point, Sean, that naming is part of the engine for this poem. So to apply the tension or contrast we were working with on the Bedart poem to this poem, I'd say that the fact that it's titled not an elegy, and you know, an elegy being an occasional poem where the empirical inciting incident is a death, the fact that it's titled not an elegy, and the fact that it is uncomfortable with the act of naming and uncomfortable with the question of how to generate an appropriate response to an inciting incident is this poem's way of matching its poetic argument, matching the motion of its poetic argument to the cognitive motion of a mind responding to the inciting incident in empirical reality that led to the poem, to the death of Mike Brown. Right. Right. Yeah. Even more than that, it feels like a kind of, is it even possible? It feels like, I think what you're saying is that like, there's like a general inciting event that it's like this kind of like general history of these actions. Right. Yeah. Um, So it's not an elegy because it's not about this particular death. It's for Mike Brown because Mike Brown represents, it's almost like in, in this weird way, it's almost like an epigraph, right? It's almost like it's not an elegy. And then like space, like line break for Mike Brown, like almost in smaller font. Is how I would yeah, like a subtitle. Like a subtitle or like a dedication where it's not about Michael Brown's death. It's more about Michael Brown's death being part of this horrible pattern that we keep seeing. So in that way, it's not an elegy because it's not about a particular death. It's about this historical pattern. Um, and yet. And yet it is. Returning to this uh, this concept of reenactment, we were talking a moment ago about the the need to say individual names as an acknowledgement versus the issue of a generalized pattern and the fact that this is part of everyday reality for many people. I think that issue is entering the poem and is being grappled with by the poem where we have his new name, his same old body, ordinary black dead thing. The body is his and yet it has to function as this procession of bodies that make this event a a generalized one as well as a singular traumatic one. And that gesture of allowing us to experience this procession of bodies in a personalized or empathetic way by calling them all his body mirrors the act of repeating an individual name 
as a response to a broader pattern. Yeah. It mirrors it and it reenacts it, yet it also acknowledges the difficulties involved and isn't interested in explaining them away for the reader, but rather in raising them and complicating them for the reader. Mm-hmm. What it makes me think of in a way is uh, there are two sort of mirror image gestures in early 20th century Russian literature where you have Andrei Bieli's Petersburg. He describes all of the pedestrians walking on a particular street mm. as being like a centipede where all their legs are connected to the, sing- the single body. Oh, cool. Gross. And then you have Mayakovsky in one of his poems where he's shouting at his audience. He says, a hundred-headed insect will rustle its little legs. So what Bieli is doing is removing the face from all these individuals, just sticking their legs into the body of this centipede, whereas what Mayakovsky is doing is multiplying the, the head or the face the seat of subjectivity, the seat of the individual which one has to encounter. And by making this procession of bodies caused by the historical pattern into his body, into the body of this singular individual whose name one can say, this poem is occupying a middle ground between the Mayakovsky position and the Bieli position. It can't be pegged to either of those two poles And from there, it draws the sort of static charge that gives it its aesthetic and cognitive value. We were talking about the longevity of occasional poems. And I think there are like two different ways you can have a test case for that. Um, Asia hasn't heard this. And so I'm going to I'm going to give her like a a delightful surprise. Oh, boy. This is a a poem uh, by a great late 19th century Scottish poet named Knight of the White Elephant of Burma, William McGonagall. What the flip are you talking about? So uh, it's called The Tay Bridge Disaster. Okay. Beautiful railway bridge of silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879 which will be rem- remembered for a very long time. It was about seven o'clock at night, and the wind blew with all its might, and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, and the demon of the air seemed to say, I'll blow down the Bridge of Tay. <laughs> when the train left Edinburgh, the passengers' hearts were light and, f- and felt no surah. <laughs> But Boreas blew a terrific gale, which made their hearts for to quail. And many of the passengers with fear did say, I hope God will send us safe across the Bridge of Tay. (laughs) Can you imagine if when you're on like Amtrak, you knew the name of every bridge you were going across and you're like, ooh, boy, howdy. (laughs) I hope that this one doesn't break down. But when the train came near to Warmoth Bay, Boreas did loud and angry bray and shook the central girders of the Bridge of Tay on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. I'm going to jump to the last stanza. It must have been an awful sight to witness in the dusky moonlight while the storm fiend did laugh and angry did bray along the railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. 
Oh, ill-fated bridge of the silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your essential girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses. (laughs) At least many sensible men confesses. For the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. Oh my god. Bravo. Bravo. Wow, buttresses. That, uh, there were a lot of syllables right there. Doesn't that sneak up on you? Because <laughs> everything else you're kind of just like, you're like, all right, this is a little Yeah, he's going to say buttresses. <laughs> He's gonna say Tay at least 30 more times. <laughs> buttresses. Oh my god. Buttresses. Uh. No, not ready. Oof. Uh, yeah. Nothing, nobody could ever be ready for Edinburgh and Surah. Yeah. What the hell is Surah? Sorrow. Uh, no. The yeah. word sorrow and the word Edinburgh rhyme with each other. If you say Surah... <laughs> That hurts. That hurts yeah. so good. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. So that's an occasion poem. <laughs> so uh, McGonagall there, he uh, he became a poet when he was fifty-two. Oh. Yeah. Was that a second career? <laughs> yes, his first career was Shakespearean actor. <laughs> <laughs> Wait known his fucking iambic pentameter then man he knows his yeah. stresses why why is buttresses in there i i suspect he was not a good shakespearean actor <laughs> <laughs> apparently there's a there's a legend that during an early performance he refused to die <laughs> <laughs> oh. he, he just couldn't be bothered <laughs> that's like missing the whole point of shakespeare someone's gotta die man yeah, I know. At least one somebody, usually oh, many more. Usually many, many, more. many, many more. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's that get was serious. Spectacular. I don't know, man. That felt pretty serious to me. <sighs> that might that might have to uh, have to make it into the podcast. Did we need another point of coordination? Yeah. We might need the bridge of Tay to make this hang together. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I think this should be called, like, the inaugural poems edition, episode one, Buttresses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like big buttresses. Post McGonagall. <laughs> um, he cannot lie, although he could rhyme any number of things with lie. <laughs> All right. Um, Boom. Easter 1916 by William Butler Yeats. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the dead, of polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument, until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers? When, young and beautiful, 
she rode to Harriers. This man had kept his school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a vain, drunk, sorry, a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart, yet I number him in song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone, through summer and winter, seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part, to murmur upon, to to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For the English may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in verse, Macdonough and Macbride and Connolly and Purse, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn are changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. So a little context, because like earlier we were talking about the way that occasional verse is especially subject to be mystifying when you're no longer in the immediate context that it came from. So it was written during World War I. Um, it was about an uprising that happened in 1916. And because the English were engaged in fighting World War I, they put down the Irish uprising quickly and violently and executed a lot of their resistors. But they, they said that the question of Irish independence would be revisited after the war. So in the middle of the poem, uh, towards the end, when Yeats says, for England may keep faith, that's what he's referring to. Yeats also knew a lot of these people that he's naming, but he was not especially fond of them. And in fact, one of them had married uh, Maud Gunn, who Yeats was like constantly pining after for his entire life. Right, um, and then he proposed to her daughter later because she wouldn't yes. marry him. So like, let's just put that on the record. Right. You could say a lot of bad things about Yeats. I think the other thing that's weird about this is it courts dullness, especially early on. It goes out of its way to repeat entire phrases And one of the things that I think it's kind of playing around with is the way that when you try and think around a terrible tragedy in your life, you often do that by going back to like relatively static experiences. And at one level that requires you to think about those and relish the fact that they were slow and boring. And at another level, it forces you to take pretty dull stuff 
and suddenly like set it on fire and make it really significant and important to you. Um, I was going to bring up the repetition also because we were talking about that earlier in some of the other poems. I think it's really interesting that repetition functions so differently than like the way breath functioned in that first poem, the empathy curse poem. Because Yeats really knows his lessons that the meaning of the word kind of changes every time you repeat it, even if you repeat it precisely in as close to precisely the same context in the same way. Or polite, meaningless words, polite, meaningless words happens again two lines later. And I noticed that both you and I, Sean, um, when we were reading the poem aloud, both like had to kind of remodulate our voices to get that second line to make any sense. Um, Yeah. So it's interesting that you're saying I, that doesn't seem like banality to me. That seems like a gesture at recognizing that um, there is gravity in repetition. Yeah. In the same way that we have in that second poem that we talked about. The banality and, seems to come in in the second stanza to me. Isaac's jumping in. Bring Isaac in. Uh, <laughs> that's where I was trying to go. I want to go to, to banality. So I'm glad that Asia has brought <laughs> us there. That's where I've been trying to bring us for a while. For years. <laughs> To my mind, this poem begins a fair way through. This poem begins when we have hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. Mm -hmm. That is the moment at which the poem begins and everything that I've read up until that point acquires aesthetic value and acquires significance by virtue of of being sort of irradiated by those four lines. So in terms of this poem as an occasional poem, the idea that the historical event of 1916 that is its inciting incident endows all of these individual people with significance is flawlessly reenacted by the way this cluster of four lines is able to irradiate the banality of the part of the poem that preceded it and endow it with significance in the same way that the inciting incident did for these commonplace banal people that Yeats is describing. Mm, But I think it's also interesting, but I would take that one step further and say that this is a really interesting occasional poem because it's such a specific event and it's a specific event that is so, that was meaningful to Ireland. I can't speak now if it is still meaningful to Ireland. Maybe it is. But it sure as hell is not meaningful to an American audience. And it's still a poem that we quote all the time. Um, yeah. And that we still read. Some of us are Irish American. Aren't are you? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I mean, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what I was gonna, what I was gonna say is that the event itself doesn't seem all that significant because oh yeah, we don't even look at the event really. Like the the, the moment that yeah. you say points to the event is hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. I mean, that could be about Charon pulling the the river sticks. That could be Narcissus. Yeah. That could be like the princess and the frog. You know, I, there could be that's like every stream I've ever read that's nothing that doesn't mean anything I totally agree and like one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this poem is that it is so middle cool about the entire thing it goes out of its way and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the banality thing where like you know it's kind of straining after that but I, I totally agree that like you can't really have that in any kind of pure sense like what you wind up with instead is these people while they were alive, I think seemed Stoneheart to him. Like he looked at these people and thought like, you are monomaniacal. You're obsessed with this one thing. And like your entire life is flowing around you because that's the only thing that you care about. And then 
like that leads him to do this this really dramatic astonishing thing and i think yates is always kind of uneasy with the fact that his life is so insulated the work that he does doesn't directly make sense to other people and then the result of it is in a in a in a weird way he he's like spends the first two stanzas of the poem going back and thinking about those people and trying to think like yeah so this one was like this and this one was like that and like they really were all different individual people but the the way that he is presenting that to us is so encapsulated and so facile that you really feel like he's kind of grasping after it. Mm-hmm. Like he's forcing himself to say, Oh yeah. So this one probably maybe could have been a poet. And this one was like kind of shrill because you're Yates and you're kind of sexist. And this one was an asshole because he married this woman who I've been obsessed with for like 40 years. It's, it's like so um, unequal to the, like the pace that it's keeping. And I, I like the second half of the poem is just damn lovely. Like the entire like river scene goes over just beautifully. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in this poem is that if it's interested in the boundary between comedy and tragedy, it seems like the boundary is looking at a stream and being sort of like utterly delighted and enchanted by the the motion of the water and the animals moving in and out of it mm-hmm. and like that moment when like a horse slip slips over the edge of the water is just like astonishing. It's so, so carefully observed. Um, And it comes in the middle of this poem about this like giant convulsive event. It goes from two stanzas that are like, let me slowly gradually remember these things because I'm trying to figure out who these people were. And then it becomes slow in a totally different way. You know, that that's one of the things that I find fascinating about this is like that third, I think it's the third stanza is slow in a completely different way than the first two stanzas. But the slowness is like completely part of what it's doing to you. So talking of the motion of a stream and a convulsive historical event, uh, talking about this gesture is something that's likely to make me do that thing that uh, people on hallucinogens do where they're, they're making <laughs> gestures that yeah. they believe are conveying their internal <laughs> reality, but that are conveying nothing, right. sort of waving their arms around. If I start doing that, stop me. Hand wave him. Right. <laughs> There's something going on here. There's a tension emerging here in that we have a historical event that is uh, ought to be profoundly consequential ought to be where the motion is happening. But the effect that it has on these people who it transforms is to reduce them to a stone or to enchant them to a stone is what, is what Yates says. Reduce. I'm, I'm sort of uh, misquoting the poem to make my argument here. What it does is transform them into a stone, which disturbs motion, the motion of the water. The motion does not emerge from the event that ought to be profoundly consequential, but it merely disturbs the broader motion of reality. And there's a certain tension that emerges from that effect. Yeah. I think it's interesting that in all three of these poems that we've ended up looking at tonight, one of the engines that makes them work is um, kind of moving away from, from the kind of facts of the event or the facts that are, that are supposed to be commented on, right? That we somehow have to go recruit something that is, I mean, that that's how metaphors work, but like 
more than that, it seems like you can't just live in you, the poem can't just live in that event itself. It has to go yeah. somewhere else and then circle back around to arrive back at the event that we started at. Um, and I think this poem actually yeah. really shows that in a, in a really dramatic way. Yeah, I think that's really a great point. Yeah. yeah. You're getting to the heart of the matter there. Yeah. No, I mean, like it's, I think that's, that's such a good point because it's one of the really important difficulties of writing like a good occasional poem that if you're writing an anecdotal poem in some way, the fact that you've selected this like random moment of like wandering around in midtown Manhattan is already like this, this very bold independent gesture. I, I feel like with writing about a major event or an event that feels deeply significant, like it, it suddenly becomes so important to come up with a way of setting up some space for yourself mm-hmm. um, or at least setting up some space for the poem. And that I feel like almost inherently involves like resisting the event Resisting the event is is a key issue here. There's a, a way in which maybe this is something that's limited to, to good occasional poems rather than occasional poems per se, but these three certainly uh, are uncomfortable with the task that the poem yeah. is faced with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite occasional poetry anecdotes is that, uh, like Ezra Pound, Pound, Elliot, Moore, and Stevens all kind of wrote their first books of poems that, or like first couple of books of poems, no, first books of poems, um, around the same time, right, right at the beginning of World War One, or right after World War One, they had to write a second book of poems or whatever, um, and Pound was asked to write a. Uh, poem like responding to it and pound's response was the translations right the translations that he's so infamous and famous for right yeah um basically he's like yeah cafe and he's like i have nothing i don't know how to talk about this i'm not on the front lines so instead i'm gonna recruit all of these other voices and try to get at it that way right um yeah and my real point is that pound basically is like i don't know i'm so uncomfortable with this request that i have to deal with this war so here is how i am going to sidestep it um so poets that do try to actually take it up i think are also deeply uncomfortable with it but like maybe these poems in particular are kind of engaging that discomfort rather than just kind of stepping around it yeah precisely it's the engagement that allows that discomfort to serve as an engine to generate wisdom value and aesthetic value in the poem rather than an obstacle to that happening well stevens has this has this prose statement on the poetry of war the immense poetry of war and the poetry of a work of the imagination are two different things in the presence of the violent reality of war consciousness takes the place of the imagination and consciousness of an immense war is a consciousness of fact If that is true, it follows that the poetry of war as a consciousness of the victories and defeats of nations is a consciousness of fact, but of heroic fact, a fact on such a scale that the mere consciousness of it affects the scale of one's thinking and constitutes a participating in the heroic. It has been easy to say in recent times that everything tends to become real, or rather, that everything moves in the direction of reality, that is to say, in the direction of fact. Believe fact and come back to it, come back to what we wanted fact to be, not to what it was, not to what it has so often remained. The poetry of a work of the imagination 
constantly illustrates the fundamental and endless struggle with fact. It goes on everywhere, even in the periods that we call peace. But in war, the desire to move in the direction of fact as we want it to be and to move quickly is overwhelming. Nothing will ever appease this desire except the consciousness of fact as everyone is at, la- as a- as at least satisfied to have it be. See, that yeah, what's really interesting about that... Um... That was way too long. But the thing yeah. that I got out of that was um, imagination versus consciousness, which is what we were talking about with that first poem and is, is actually a very similar engine to what's happening here, right? Um, because that the trouble the living stream, number one, like enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream, for me, that just really activates a kind of like alternate reality, almost fantasy um, that is existing next to kind of these more um, factual reportage type of stanzas. Um, And it does seem to be that there's this tension between what um, we construct or what we escape to in this poem. It's more like what we escape to or what's kind of happening adjacent to the events, the, the the events that are kind of inciting this poem. Um, But it's interesting that in the first poem, the, th- the, uh, the imagination that was happening adjacent to the events um, was that kind of empathic act. Um, so it does seem to be that you kind of have to, like, it, I don't know, it, Stevens feels onto something in that you have to, that there is this struggle between the facts and whatever your brain has kind of done to um, process it, right? Whether it's escapism or empathy or imagining. Um, all of these are kind of the iterations, like the gymnastics our brains do when we have to kind of reckon with the events of our lives or the events that kind of might incite an occasion poem. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That feels right. That feels uh, well, that, productive. That notion of uh, adjacency being consequential, of adjacency being uh, potentially disruptive is is mirroring what happens in this poem with the stone that the stone is disrupting the broader motion to which it's adjacent mhm mhm yeah you're totally right no i think you're totally right that like there's there's something about the um i mean this, this goes back to your your initial point that like there were a lot of these authors who were trying to come up with a second book at the end of World War One, who couldn't figure out how to write something that would feel equivalent to it. Well, what this sends me to is the, uh, in the aftermath of the next World War, the problem of how was one to write lyrical or aesthetic poetry in, in the face of what had just happened. And yeah. I believe the famous sentence was, uh, how is poetry possible after Auschwitz? I think we can wrap this up a little bit by talking about like, let's like recap for a second. So what have we learned about inauguration poems today or not, or not God damn it. Occasion poems today. You've gotten gotten to uh, what was our inciting incident. We intended to do a podcast about (laughs) inauguration poems and we got started on it and we found that we just did not want to. No. Yeah. No, I mean, we should, we should try and take um, a few passes at like summative comments. I mean, so like it maybe seems- one way to think about it is what do you what think do you you're going to be chewing on? I know one thing that used to happen for me at PRG is there was usually something I was chewing on for the rest of the week or like a couple of days after. So what is it you think you're going to be chewing on after we've talked about this? I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, you know, especially in the last 
few months, but even before then is like, you know, um, what relationship should poetry have with what's going on around it? Yeah, That's really pretentious and, you know, dramatic, but uh, you know, well, that actually leads me to the thing I'm going to be chewing on. I mean, I think we've all, I think all artists, all of my artist friends and all of my poet friends have kind of had different versions of this conversation. Yeah. Um, I thought I was special Asia. Nope. You're not a special snowflake. Don't you know? Uh, read the time article. Oh, no. millennial hood. Millennial hood. But I've been read. I've been reading Believer magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much hope. You're not special, Sean. Join the millennials. Just one. You've got to make these moments when we make fun of each other. Right. <laughs> um, right. But what I was saying was one of the things that I think one of the things I've been thinking about and what this conversation about occasional poems might kind of like, I might be able to apply to kind of my thoughts about that um, more generally is that I think one of the useful things about poetry or art in a moment like this is kind of the same way that we were just talking about in the Yeats poem, um, yeah. how there are inciting events and then there's the thing that you play those inciting events against so that you can either make sense of the event or so that you can escape the event and escaping the event is also part of making sense of the event. Um, so one of the ways that I think poetry helps us do that is it gives you a foil. Basically this is like foiling, right? Um, where you have something to play against so that you can understand better what the hell is happening around you or yeah. in the case of an occasional poem, how do you understand the uprising of Easter 1916 without make, taking that moment to go to the stream and watch that horse. Um, it doesn't make sense without that moment, right? And I also feel like one of the things that's so important to keep in mind is like the indefiniteness of events. I mean, like, you know, that, that was the thing I was trying to get at earlier with the going to church and hearing the thing about the resistance is like, I feel like we're kind of in this weird limbo where like something terrible is going to happen. I'm very sure of that. Mm -hmm. And I think the terrible thing has already started happening, but I don't know what the connection is between my feeling that the terrible thing has already started happening and my sense that something terrible is going to happen. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, I don't know what an event is anymore because everything like every day that Trump wakes up and is allowed to exist by this cosmos is a, is a foul event, but also there's going to be some specific event that's going to be looked back on as being especially terrible mm -hmm. and despicable. And I don't know what it's going to be or when it's going to happen. And I know that it's going to be of a piece with all the stuff that's already ha happened. One of the weird difficulties for, for poetry seems to be that like, I don't know. There'd be there'd be something beneficial to having the sense of like there's a series of discrete events that I'm responding to, mm -hmm. like this battle happened or this bridge collapsed. I, I, but I don't want to I don't want to imply that I envy people who have lived through battles and bridge collapses. The question of envying people who have bad who have experienced battles and bridge collapses is central to what I'd like to say about uh, poetry's proper role and proper function in times like ours is that they, they enable me to use expressions like times like ours. And I'm uncomfortable yeah. with that. It's uh, the, the three of us come from the generation that was born after 
Fukuyama's end of history and before 9-11. And I often imagine, I, I often suspect that our generation's reaction to Trump and Trumpism is tinged by a sense that it's a relief from the end of history, that it's a moment that allows us to think of our own actions and our own thoughts as consequential because of the sort of times we live in. Mm, yeah. And just as some of the poems, just as the poems that we have looked at tonight are at their most generative and at their most aesthetically valuable when they grapple with their inciting incidents. Mm -hmm. I want to ensure that I'm always grappling with these times we live in rather than observing myself reacting to them and enjoying the fact that I have historically consequential events to react to. I don't want to envy people who have seen battles and bridge collapses because by doing that I'm retreating to the same sort of narcissistic bubble we were talking about earlier yeah yeah and I I definitely don't envy people who have seen battles and bridge collapses I that's good I'm glad you don't (laughs) would I would be very happy to live in boring times well maybe that'll be next week's theme boring poems can I fire off one more Yates thing yeah I cast my heart into my rhymes that you in the dim coming times may know how my heart went with them. That's the part that I was like really into because you were talking a moment ago, Asia, about the feeling of like a certain amount of resistance in poetry, like helping people process their relationship to their historical moment. Mm -hmm. That idea of like, I cast my heart into rhymes that you and the dim coming times may know how my heart went with them yeah. is something that I've thought about a lot in the last few months. Well, that's something that we can all grapple with. And these occasional poems have left us with, uh, with the need to keep grappling. So I think we, with, uh, with that parting shot, we can leave it. If you don't mind, I'd like to close with a shout out. So we've been talking about poets grappling with historical events tonight. If you'd like to see a very fine example of a nonfiction author grappling with a historical event from our own time, I'd like to recommend my friend Sophie Pinkham's book, Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine, which you can find on Amazon right now. Her writing on the Maidan protests, among other things, is very relevant to many of the issues we've been talking about. Thanks very much.